Welcome to Rogue Bogues. This is the Journey Series Episode 8. I apologize. I have been uh, a little busy. Haven't got a Journey episode out in a long time. So here that is. Thanks for joining us again. This one is about my rookie year in the NBA. Back to 2005 in the last podcast, we spoke about my sophomore year transitioning into finding an agent and preparing for the NBA draft and everything fun that went along with that, the strategy, the ups and downs, but finally getting there. Obviously, we now know I was picked number one in the NBA draft by the Milwaukee Bucks. I then went on a holiday to um, Croatia for a couple of weeks and then followed that up by going to Australia. Worked out a little bit there, started to get back into, into shape and headed over to Milwaukee in August, I believe it was, mid to late August. Got there a little bit earlier than most players would. We, um, we start training camp generally first week of October, or at least back then it was the first week of October. October 1 was usually the, the media day and then we went on with our training camp. So land in Milwaukee, not knowing a soul. I wasn't like college where you'd have an assistant coach there waiting for you to try and help you um, transition to a new city to meet people. So I got off the plane. I think my agent was there at the time to help me um, kind of navigate what was going on, just support me a little bit for those first couple of days. We're straight into workouts, daily workouts. So team sessions for the rookies and the young guys and the camp guys that were there leading into training camp. Afternoons were spent looking for an apartment or a house, looking for a car, all that fun stuff. I only had two or three bags with me at the time. So anyway, I ended up finding an apartment downtown. For some reason, I thought it'd be a good idea to live in an apartment. Big Seinfeld fan. You know, all those sitcoms back in the day, all these people lived in apartments and looked like they were having the time of their lives. And it was the, the hip in thing to do. And you're a baller if you're living in a high-rise apartment. Well, boy, was I wrong because I ended up hating it, but we'll get to that later on. So I ended up finding a, a beautiful place, though. It was on the waterfront of the Lake Michigan of Milwaukee. So I found that place 26 floors up, beautiful view. So can't complain too much, but apartment living definitely was just not for me for a number of reasons. But getting to Milwaukee was interesting because I didn't realize that um, – we were near that large of a body of water. Obviously, being a lake, I was I was kind of confused because I knew Milwaukee was central. I thought I was near an ocean, how big this lake was. So going over the bridge to the practice facility, you'd go over Lake Michigan and, and looking out, you just, as far as the eye can see, you can just see water. It felt like the ocean. So I had to kind of go back home later and, and, and figure out exactly on the map where Milwaukee was. But um, beautiful place in the summer, you know, and that was what kind of threw me off. I heard a lot of bad things about Milwaukee before I got there, but I numerous different people you know it's very cold not a great place to live um, small market blah 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 but when i got there in the summer man it was it was beautiful you know um, summer fest was on which is a big music music festival they still have to this day there people out and about you know shorts and t-shirt um sunny it was quite warm so nothing's wrong with milwaukee what are you guys talking about it's not that bad but obviously <laughs> four or five months down the track it, it did become a pretty tough place to live weather-wise very very cold but but as far as it being a small city and all that kind of stuff, I, I always kind of enjoyed that more than the big city because I think it just was a bit more peaceful and you still had everything you needed in a city, but it wasn't the hustle and bustle of a big city. So I always appreciated that. But moving on, young kid, 19, 20 years old, finally has his own house, own space, own apartment, whatever you want to call it. Had no idea what to do. So I remember my um, agent, David, who we spoke to in the last episode, he sent out a lady named Danielle Cantor, who um, was kind of a, a junior agent working her way up. And she had uh, flown out to Milwaukee and, and basically took me shopping to get stuff that I didn't even think you needed for, for a house or an apartment. You know, my mum did everything for me as a young kid, like most most boys, I guess, most boys and girls. You know, buying bed linens, sheets, pillows, pillowcases, cutlery, bathroom linens, towels towels, soap, dishwashing detergent, <laughs> plates, the list goes on and on, right? So she flew out and took me shopping to kind of recommend what I need for the place. And I remember two, three, two or three hours into the, the shop, I was like, I don't want to do this. This, you know, this is horrible. I hate this. And she's kind of like, suck it up. You need this stuff for your apartment. So we got the, the apartment kind of furnished, uh, got some furniture, all that kind of stuff. It was bare bones. It wasn't fancy. It was just kind of more of a necessity of what I needed. So I wasn't really too focused on looks and the artsy side of things as most young young kids my age would be. So we ended up getting that place nice and furnished, but it still never felt home. It just never really felt like I was home home. It felt like I was going from road trips in a hotel back to apartment, which felt like a hotel. So at one point I had my mother fly out 
and she just tried to homely up the place a little bit. You know, I grew up in a house with knickknacks all over the place, a lot of Croatian type stuff, artwork, plates on the wall, you know, your standard wog stuff that most people that are of some sort of European background would understand. It was just everywhere all over the house and it just felt like home, right? So we kind of, you know, mum brought stuff from Australia that was unique to Australia, fridge magnets, posters for the walls, pictures, knickknack items that you can put on mantelpieces. So just made it a bit more homely and I appreciated that. So mum came out for a couple of weeks and did that. You know, I was at a point now where I was essentially self-sufficient. So I had a financial advisor through my agent who, at that point, I was straight basketball, didn't want to know about anything else. So, he took care of all my bills, my utilities, taxes, all that he took care of as far as even making the payments. I didn't make those payments and I had no idea how to even do it back then. It's obviously not as easy as it is today. Jumping online, it was a matter of writing checks and a matter of you know getting invoices and putting them in an envelope and sending it all off. So, he, he did all that for me, which was much appreciated, but I had no idea anyway, even if I wanted to do it, to be quite honest with you. I ended up getting a car deal with a local dealer by the name of Salentine. Salentines, and it was a Pontiac and Buick dealer. Um, so, my first car was a, a Pontiac GTO, the equivalent of a Holden Monaro. I always wanted that car as a kid. The Monaro just got re-released in Australia a couple of years before that. So, it was kind of like, this is what I want. I was happy with that. And I also got an SUV, a Buick Rainier, I believe it was. Not a fancy SUV by any, any means. Just two cars I got for free for two years, two-year deal. Didn't have to pay anything for them. Kind of a car lease arrangement. But copped a lot of shit for that by um, a lot of NBA players, you know, laughed at me because I was in cars that I liked but weren't deemed to be fancy or luxurious for a number one pick, but I didn't really give a shit. You know, I, I really, Pontiac GTO, Holden Monaro equivalent for me was was great at that point in my life and I enjoyed it thoroughly, but just trying to be smart with my money to an extent. But I also, you know, kept forgetting I had money. You know, I'd go into restaurants and still be looking at the bill and freaking out about how much that steak was and, and even buying, you know, a watch or whatever. I'd, I'd kind of was always, you know, skeptical about spending that kind of money. So, that took me years to kind of get out of my head. The following year, I ended up buying a, a Porsche Cayenne, which we'll get to later on. But that was that was kind of my first nice car, Porsche Cayenne Turbo. Beautiful car. The best car, one of the best cars we've ever driven SUV wise. But anyhow, we, we, we go on from there. Financial guy, like I said, took care of all the, all the ins and outs daily just to, you know, your agent wants you to focus on basketball as much as possible. And, and, and your agent has an incentive to do that. They want you to focus on getting better. And the better you get, the more money you make. And the more money you make, the more money they make. It's 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 quite simple and it's a blunt reality. And, and, and it is what it is. I've got nothing against it. That's the business, right? Um, the more money you make, their commission remains the same. But the more money you make, the higher their commission is. So, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. So, then we go on from there. People always ask, what was the first thing you bought? The first nice thing you bought with your money, right? Now, keep in mind my first check in the NBA didn't come till mid-November. That's when, um, you know, checks start rolling in. It's the 15th of, of, of the 11th generally. The first thing I bought was my, I bought my parents a house. So, I bought them a house on the waterfront in the suburbs of a place called Patterson Lakes where they lived a, a bunch of years, bought them a, a really nice home there on the water and bought them both a car each. My, my, my dad got a, a HSV station wagon. The old lady actually got a Holden Monaro as well. So, bought them, looked after them before I really even had the cash in my account to do so. And that was kind of the only real big purchase I made for the first couple of years in the league. I, I just wasn't enamored by having to spend money. You know, my apartment, I, I didn't own, I rented. And like I said, I, I still didn't realize that I had a bunch of zeros at the end of my bank account. I really didn't. I had, had no idea. Um, was happy in just the Nike sweats I got from Nike, was was happy with just everyday stuff. I wasn't really enamored by the luxury stuff until I started getting on planes with the NBA guys and seeing all the luxury. I, I didn't even really knew it existed. And a funny story about that, I'll get to a, a little bit later about walking into my first Louis Vuitton store, but we get to the basketball. The basketball was was hard. I still wasn't a heavy guy by NBA terms. I was under underweight for that era of basketball. I was, you know, one hundred and five, one hundred and ten kilos max. So what's that? Two thirty five, two forty, somewhere around there pounds for our American listeners or our non metric listeners. And I just knew I would struggle to to wrestle with the Shaq and the Yows and the Dwight Howards of the world. And I was right. I struggled with that, you know, and, and it, it was it was alarming how physical the game was back then and how big the bodies were. It's a little bit different today. So had ups and downs through camp, had great days at camp and then had some days where I'd just get the shit kicked out of me by some 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 wily veterans and that was just something you had to deal with. But as with the boomers chats we had when I went to the Athens Olympics with Rookie Night, well 
guess where I was a rookie again, the NBA. So now it was time to get initiated again into being a rookie. And I remember the first couple of weeks, the veterans came into training camp. I had Michael Red, Joe Smith, Irvin Johnson, Tony Kukoc, Desmond Mason, had a bunch of veterans that were played all over the league and that were, you know, good people for the most part. Michael Red was railing me from, from day one, you know, better get ready for rookie night, young fella, better get ready. So I didn't really know what was expected. I got told at one point, you need to know a song. You need to sing a song when we have this rookie night. Say, so, okay, you can sing your, your school fight song, you can sing your national anthem, but you need to sing a song for us. Oh, that's not too hard. You know, what's a big deal, right? Then we had some other rookie rules that they explained to me. I had to get um I had to get Krispy Kreme donuts for every shoot around that we had at home. So 41 games. Whenever we we play that night, we usually have a shoot around in the morning. It only goes for an hour just to loose up and down, get some shots up in the arena. I had to go on the way. Thankfully, there's a petrol station or a gas station on the way that had Krispy Kreme. So I would go and buy two or three boxes of those, made sure that they were there. I had to sing happy birthday to whoever's birthday it was on any particular day, solo generally for the most part, or with the other rookie who was Ersan Eliasova. But he was up and down to the G League, which was the D League at the time. So I had to do that. That was pretty much it. You know, if a veteran asked you to go and get him a water or a drink, you'd do it. If a veteran asked you for anything really, you'd do it. You know, the, the rookies that get in trouble tend to push back and try to be smart asses back or like, I'm not doing that. That's bullshit. They'll end up they'll end up messing with you even more. So, I was pretty good with it. Number one pick and whatever. I didn't think I was above it. Happy to do it. The rookie night got me a little bit nervous with that song. I'm not going to lie. So, that was in the back of my mind. So, we're in preseason, start of October. Like I said, the camp went well. I still remember this little tidbit. Joe Smith was you know, a very, very good player in his element. He was stretching next to me. I think we're at the end of the first session. I just remember the first session being so intense, you know, two, three-hour session. Back then, it was two-a-days of actual two-a-days that were, were two-a-days, whereas now, one's contact, one's not. They kind of give guys rest nights and whatever. This was full on, right? So, we're at the end of our first training session in the morning and we're stretching and Joe kind of looks at me and goes, you know, how'd you go, young fella? I go, man, this is tough, you know? Like, man, just felt like it went for practice session, went for like a, a long time. It was only two and a half hours. I felt like it was six hours, so tired. He goes, young fella, this will happen. Your, your career and this journey will go to the click of your fingers, right? And I'm like, yeah, right, man. Like, there's no chance. I'm 19, 20. I'm like hurting from this session, from beat, getting beat up by all these grown men. Like, yeah, sure, veteran. Like, what do you know? And here I am doing this podcast at 36 years old, 16, 17 years later, and it feels like it was faster than a click of the fingers. That's just the reality of how quick it goes. Once you're in the NBA or professional sports, it's flight to hotel to arena to flight to hotel to arena to off-season holiday to flight to hotel to arena to national team, on and on the whole time you're playing. And it goes quick, goes very, very quickly, and you take it for granted for the most part. You're stuck in that bubble or in that grind. You don't realize, holy shit, I'm I'm five years into my career. I'm eight years into my career. I'm about to retire. I'm a veteran now, you know? So, I remember always being called young fella, and then that felt like it disappeared pretty quickly. So, that's just one of those tidbits that I remember. We now move on to the rookie night. So, towards the end of our preseason, we had about seven games. We had a we had a preseason game up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, known for the Green Bay Packers, about an hour, hour and a half north of Milwaukee. We fly out there. I can't remember who we were playing. We played someone up there. Game was irrelevant, didn't matter. But I remember there's a steakhouse out there called the Brett Favre Steakhouse, obviously the famous quarterback, one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Played for Green Bay. He has a steakhouse there. I'm not sure if it's still there, I assume it would be, but Brett Favre Steakhouse. So, you know, the team rents out a um, private room at the back there of the restaurant and a fine fine dining steak restaurant, you know, your lobster and your, your nice fillets and all the presentation is is immaculate. Kind of my first real intro into, into fine dining in the USA or what would be deemed an expensive meal. That was rookie night. So, a couple of days before, you know, are you ready? You ready? I'm all ready yet. I've been practicing my song. I, I decided to do, number one, I, I wasn't too familiar with the Utah fight song. Um, I hadn't sung it too much. So, I just did the Australian anthem. That was my song. Anyhow, so I get there. It was myself and Ersan Ilyasova. He didn't speak a lick of English at that point. Obviously, from, from Turkey, but Russian, heavy Russian um, descent, so spoke Russian as his first language, a bit of Turkish, and then probably zero, zero to zero point one percent English. He was learning, and we we get to the to the restaurant. Everyone eats their meal, and I'm kind of nervously eating, knowing the end of this meal. I'm about to enjoy this nice fillet and some lobster and some shrimp, and I, I just know. 
like I'm about to do something stupid where everyone's going to laugh at me. You know, I'm going to have to sing a song in front of the team so that the meal didn't go down as well as a two, three hundred dollar meal should have, if that makes sense, right? So the last 10 odd minutes of the meal, dessert starts rolling out. Michael Red gets up, leaves the room, and I'm like, oh, what's going to happen now? Comes back with a bag of diapers. Nappies for the Aussies, diapers. These were the big boy pull-ups. So obviously, f- you know, more f- more suited towards a bigger guy like myself and Ersanity Sober. He throws a pack of uh, nappies at both of us. Tells us go and put these on. So we go around a corner, and one of the vets comes back. I can't remember who it was, and we just put them on over over our clothes. He comes around the corner, and he's like, No, 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 no. You need no, no clothes. It's just a nappy. You just have to have the nappy on like a baby. I'm just like, whoa, this is full on. So, I took the nappy on. I'm like, you know what? Who gives a shit? Whatever. Like, they want to they mess with me? Okay, cool. So, I took the nappy on. Ursan's really embarrassed. So, this this kid's from another country. doesn't speak English well. So, he's like shitting himself. It's just kind of- I was kind of trying to tell him like, we got to do it. So, we might as well do it. He was real nervous about going out there. So, I was like, screw it. Put it on. Walk out to where the group is. They're all laughing at us, making us feel bad, blah, blah, blah. Another veteran comes up to us and gives us some dummies or pacifiers, a bib, you know, just baby stuff to put on. And we were then made to perform our song of choice while in nappies slash diapers. So, that was our rookie night. And I remember just doing the national anthem. Ersan got up and sung, I think he sang the national anthem of, of Russia or he sang something in Russian and I believe it was a national anthem. He sung that and then it was done. So, I thought. Now, this would be deemed highly inappropriate these days and would probably have gotten a lot of my teammates in trouble, but they decided to call a, a waitress in who then had, they pulled up a chair and I had to somewhat give her we had to somewhat do what you deem as a lap dance. Now, no touching and feeling, but just somewhat give the girl a dance, which, you know, I don't condone, but I was kind of forced to do and might have a case of bullying if I really wanted to. But no, that's that's what we had to do. And that was a little bit embarrassing because it wasn't someone from our group, but that was, that was what happened. And then everyone laughing, everyone laughing, ha, ha, ha. That was it. It was about probably five to 10 minutes of just having a nappy on and looking like an absolute idiot and everyone pointing and laughing and then it was over. So, I walked back to to the back, chucked the clothes on, came back. The guys appreciated that myself and Ursan were good sports about it. You know, we did what we did and got on with life. Sat back down, finished my dessert, thought the night was, uh, was pretty much over. It wasn't. All the guys get up and leave. One of the veterans comes up and um, gives Ursan and I the check to the meal. The, the bill. So, I had no idea what was going on. Like, thanks for dinner, Rook. And they just walked out. So, I had to sing for him in nappies at a, at a very expensive, nice fine dining steakhouse and then had to pay for the very privilege. So, that's just a part of the NBA initiation. I assume it's somewhat calmed down a little bit since then, but it was even worse before I got there, some of the stories that I heard, but that's something that I had to go through. Took my lumps, a few other things. Also had to get a birthday cake whenever it was someone's birthday. So I had to actually go to a birthday cake shop and get a birthday cake for Player X. And I started getting a little bit cheeky. A few times I just went to the supermarket and got those ice cream cakes or those those shitty little $10 cakes. And that didn't go too well. So a few of the guys got on me a little bit about that. So fun. Jamal McGlaw, who I'll talk talk about a little bit in a second about how we acquired him. He used to have a habit of calling me the night before every game on the road. So, okay, we get to, let's say we get to Portland. We get to Portland at 5 p.m. We get to the, finally get to the hotel or whether it's midday, whenever it is, the night before a game, we get off our flight, bus to the hotel. The trainer would get up at the front of the bus Go, all right, guys, you know, enjoy your nights, enjoy your dinner. Tomorrow morning, game day, we have shoot around at 10 a.m. The bus leaves the hotel at 9.30 a.m. We'll be back at the hotel roughly by 11.30, 12. Lunch is at 12.30. And then we'd have generally two bus times. Later on in my career, it started becoming three to four different buses. So you, if the game was at 7 p.m., you'd have like a four o'clock bus and maybe a five o'clock bus. Whereas later on in my career, it became, you know, there was a bit more buses. So while we have different buses, some guys shooting times or their workout is earlier. The veterans and guys that play big minutes, their shooting times are closer towards tip-off. Shooting times mean the individual shooting you see guys do before, right before team warm-ups, hour before that. So you had numerous buses. So the trainer would get up and give you all those times. These 
days it's all done by text so as a group chat and, and so you can refer back to it the problem with back then was trainer would give you all these times and then guys would either have their headphones on be talking to their wife on the phone thinking about something else listening to music and a lot of guys would miss it so that's why they started doing the texts and our team back then would actually print out something and, and put it under your door for the most part but anyway Jamal McGlaw he was a veteran that really looked after me I really respected respected him and he took me under his wing for the most part him and Irvin Johnson probably the two guys that really helped me but he would call me the night before a game around midnight every road trip he'd call me and be like hey young fella time to shoot around tomorrow yes yeah, it's, it's it's 10am Jamal the bus is at 9.30 alright all right, young fella have a good night hang up that's it right so after a while I'm like you know there, was, there were a few times where I was about to go to sleep or where I was asleep and the phone rings and I'm like, oh my God, it's, it's, it's Jamal. Just woke me up or whatever, right? So, I started getting smart. I thought I'd get smart. I, I, I get to, you know, we get to a city. The trainer goes, buses at 9 a.m., shoot around 9.30, blah, 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 blah. As I get off the bus, I chase Jamal McGlaw down and I, um, hey, Big Cat, that was his nickname, Big Cat. Jamal, hey, shoot arounds at 9.30 tomorrow. Sorry, shoot arounds at, yeah, 10 o'clock, 9.30 bus, man, like- have you got it? And he's like, yeah, appreciate that young fella. Thank you. Thank you. Later that night, my phone rings. <laughs> hey, young fella, what time shoot around tomorrow? <laughs> so at this point, I'm like, he's, like, he's messing with me, right? Like he's just, he's just messing with me, just trying to. But so I see him the next day and I'm like, big cat, I told you what time the shoot around was. We was going to the lobby. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just, just like to confirm it. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be late, young fella. I don't want to get a fine. I said, come on, man, stop messing with me. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to call the front desk from now on and tell him to um, turn my phone off, my room phone. He goes, young fella, if you do that, you're going to have a whole lot more issues than just telling me what time shoot around is. Point taken, Jamal left my phone on and the rest of that season, he, um, he would call me and basically just tell me, you know, what time, sh- ask me what time shoot around is. So that was one of the, one more rookie thing I had on my plate, but the guys were pretty good. And like I said, if you if you're a good sport about it and not a dickhead about it, they um they'll treat you with respect. But at times they're going to mess with you, and that's just the reality. What else, rookie wise? If I'm getting a massage or I'm getting some some work from the trainer or the physio, and a veteran comes in, this was back then. This has changed a lot. This was back then. A veteran came in, said, "Let me get that table, rook. You have to get up mid massage, mid treatment, mid icing." get up, the veteran's doing his treatment, you got to wait. Whether it takes an hour, whether it takes 10 minutes, and then once you, once you're uh, once he's done, you get back on. Same as taping your ankles, same as food on the plane. Oh my goodness, I got on the plane one time and I was I didn't know the rules and was was getting my food before a veteran and, and was basically told, no, 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 you got to wait, you ought to last. So they really make you feel like you're part of the team. <laughs> but they really also make you feel like you're last on the totem pole, which you are. So there's no messing around with those vets. You got to make sure that you respect them and they respect you back. That's changed a lot now. These young fellas coming in with a lot more swag than 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 Hall of Famers, and that's the reality we're at. But they um they used to do a lot of things. We used to hear all kinds of things with with, with what veterans used to do, especially the guys that that kind of um, weren't good sports about it. So. Back to basketball, the club, the team had worries about me in preseason, not being strong enough and big enough. You know, like I said, I was, you know, 235 odd pounds, 105, 110 kilos. Wasn't the strongest at that point, very wiry. Kind of my strength in my game was my footwork and speed for a big guy of seven foot, be able to get up and down the floor, believe it or not. Yes, I could run the floor at one point in my career. So they had explored a trade for Jamal McGlaw. He was with the New Orleans Hornets at that point. Yeah, the New Orleans Hornets at that point. Desmond Mason was in that trade. So Desmond was a great veteran for me. I really enjoyed him. The short stint I had with him in training camp, he wasn't there long, but I really enjoyed being around him. And he was, I guess, promised at some point whether in that that preseason or whatever it was that, you know, he wasn't going to get moved. I think he bought a house because of it. Well, the reality of it is our last game of preseason, I think it was in Denver, I believe. I'm not sure where it was. It was the last game of preseason. And I come to the breakfast meeting. So we have a breakfast meeting. You know, some days we don't have shoot around on a game day. We might have got in late the night before from another game. We'll just have a breakfast meeting, 10 a.m. breakfast meeting. You know, you can get get your eggs and bacon and breakfast and whatever. And then there'll be a little film session and a scout talk about the game. And then it's back to your room, nap, and then off to the buses in the afternoon for the game. So I'm sitting there and I'm kind of, you know, I'm pretty across who's on the team at that point. And I'm, I'm kind of, you know, that's how I am. I know if someone's missing from the room. So at one point, you know, I'm the young fella, so I hadn't been told. I put my hand up and said, hey, you know, starting our meeting, but Desmond isn't here yet. Yeah, yeah, young fella, shut up, shut up, kind of thing. Like, 
you know, a couple of guys are like, you don't know? I'm like, no. Nah. Like, yeah, we traded him today. I'm like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? He was just here like last night. I just saw him, had, you know, probably had, had a meal with him or chatted to him or whatever and gone. That was my first intro to the reality of the NBA, man. Like it was one one night was with him, flew with him to Denver, had dinner, we've been around, we're talking shit, we're joking, we're smiling, we're laughing the next morning at a team meeting, you don't see him again. So the reality of that is you don't have a chance to say goodbye, you don't have a chance to well wish them, you don't have, you know, it's all via text these days, obviously, but that human interaction, that human element of like, damn, man, like he was a really good dude and I haven't had a chance to to say goodbye to him properly other than seeing him when the cameras are on you the next game and you know, it all looks good for, for Hollywood, but that real, true, genuine interaction, you just don't have that opportunity to do. So, like I said, that was my first foray into the brutal business of the NBA, but they did bring in Jamal McGlaw, who, like I said, was a was a really, really good veteran for me. He just came off an all-star year, either the year before or the year before that. Big, strong dude, really strong dude. Like, he was he was annoying to guard at practice for me as a young fella just because he was, you know, big, solid hips and, and booty and just, just tough to guard basketball-wise. So, you know, when he's posting you up and backing you down, man, like, he's just a tough guy to get around and, and, and really kind of keep off the block. So, I struggled with him, but he taught me a lot about different things. Irvin Johnson really taught me a lot. He was kind of a veteran that that taught me how to guard how to guard the post. He was a role playing big man his whole career. It wasn't Magic Johnson for those that are probably confused right now. He was he played in Seattle for many years, played in Denver and then was in Milwaukee. They basically kept him on to mentor me a little bit and, and he taught me the ropes. He was invaluable. They kept him on as a vet min guy and that was a smart move by them. Taught me the arm bars, how to hold guys, all the dirty stuff. You know, you can push a guy's hip here and get away with it when he's shooting a hook shot, the refs won't notice it. Or you can hold a guy when he's help side rotation. If I'm on the weak side and my teammates driving from the other side of the floor about to get to the, you know, get to the rim and try to dunk it. As your man goes to help, you grab his wrist really quickly and it, it kind of stunts his movement for a second and bang, your teammate gets a dunk and stuff like that that people don't see on a stat sheet that he taught me. Invaluable. Also had Desmond Mason all for you know a month or two. He returned later on in my career, but he was he was really good. And Tony Kukoc, you know, he was he was a, a veteran. It was his final year of his career. He was really fried at that point, in my opinion. And I think he'll probably tell you the same thing. I think he'd had a, a long NBA career and I think he was just over all the BS of it and was just, just there to finish out his career and then move on to something else. So he wasn't too veteran influencing to me. He wasn't a guy that gave a whole lot at times he did, but he was, he was real quiet for the most part. He wasn't, he wasn't an, a guy that was overly vocal. And I tried to pick his brain on things at times. And some days he'd be in a great mood and give you some stuff. And sometimes he'd be that that um older cranky veteran much like i was late in my career where he's like just leave me alone i just need to get get in and get out and go home <laughs> but he was um a guy sat near on the plane i remember he used to sit on the plane he used to he used to look out the window the whole flight and i've spoken about this on other, other podcasts on the basketball podcast where he he was just a nervous flyer and i asked him one day like why do you look out the window the whole time he goes man i'm just nervous i've been a nervous flyer ever since i was with the chicago bulls because you know we were on a flight one time that you know, we almost almost went down in the city of downtown Chicago somewhere. We had an issue with the plane and I kind of laughed at that. Not laughed at it, I just thought, oh man, this dude. And then that that's that's now me. That's now me flying. I'm that guy because we almost went down a few times that same year and the next year in my first two NBA years. And yeah, you just, you just end up getting a bit more nervous the more flights you get on, which you think it's kind of the opposite. The more you fly, the less nervous you'd be. But for me, I ended up being Tony Kukoc, but um, yeah, he, he was around. It, it was a thrill to play with him. He was a guy I idolized growing up. As most people would know, I had his jersey as a kid, a big fan of his and the Bulls and the role that he played there. And he was just a high IQ, great shooter, kind of. If he played in today's era, man, he'd be he'd be up there with the Okic of the world, in my opinion, because his skill set is so perfect for the way the game is played today. You can play him at the five, at stretches and, and all of that, but that's a story for another day. First road trip, really, I remember this. Okay, so our first road trip, get to the plane nice and early. Where are we driving? Why aren't I driving to a, an airport parking type thing? I'm driving, you know, address goes to a, a plane hangar. So, oh, wow, we're going on a charter. You, you kind of forget all that, get there. and You get on a charter jet. I remember walking on and there's two tables on each side of the aisles that are between the seats. So, you got all your rows and then you've got like where the exits are. Instead of having seats, they have these two massive tables just filled with food. I'm talking like lobster and prawns and shrimp and some hors d'oeuvres and some sliders. And that was kind of the appetizers. I was like, oh my goodness, this is crazy. It was like 
a nice restaurant on an airplane. And then on top of that, you had your meals that would be served to you later. So that was my harsh reality for everyone out there to the NBA chartered flights. I remember sitting down, just putting my bag on a chair, someone from down the back of the plane, nope, that's that's Desmond's seat, okay? Pick my bag up, walk to this chair. Nope, that's Tony's seat. Go to the next chair. Nope, that's Irv's seat. Like, for fuck's sake. All right, can someone tell me where I can sit? So I ended up, there was a row of seats behind Tony Kukoc that were available, so I ended up sitting there. But that's how full on it is, man. Like, NBA players, they all had their, their assigned, not their assigned seats by the team. They had seats that were their territory. That's my mark territory. You know, once you get as many years as me, you can have that seat. Or once you get as many all-star caps as me, you can have that seat. But it was a clear pecking order in NBA teams and it went by. Generally went by, it wasn't so much years unless you were in the league 10 plus years and you were a real old school veteran, you kind of could get what you want. But it went by earnings. So basically, you just you just put out a salary, the, the team salaries. Player number one is Max, Michael Red. That guy gets whatever he wants on that plane, generally has first dibs. So that's just the reality of what you're dealing with um, when it comes to pecking order on an NBA plane, an NBA bus, hotel rooms, food, treatment, physios, masseuses, playing time at times, touches. So different um, different things for different people, right? So on that first road trip, plane lands. Now, keep in mind, I've been in college. I've been with a national team. Everything's very team-based and team-orientated. Everything's done together, team meals, meetings, Point A to point B, it's all done as a team. As we land, you know, I'm kind of asked, I can't remember who I asked, Irvin Johnson or Tony Kukoc. I think it was Tony Kukoc at the time. Hey, what are we doing, what are we doing tonight? Where's the team meeting at? What room is it in? Do we have to have a, you know, where, where, where's the team meal at? Blah, blah, blah. Small chuckle out of Tony. There's there's no team meal, young fella. You're, you're on your own till tomorrow. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean on your own? No, you're like, night off, man. We land, bust the hotel, and everyone goes their separate way. You can go party, you can go to eat, you can stay in your room and watch movies, do whatever you want, you know, just be on that bus for shooting around tomorrow morning. Like, holy shit, this is a whole different world. You know, college, you have roommates, NBA, you have your own room. So there's always something going on in college, team meetings, point A to point B, team meals. They might do some touristy stuff in college or the national team, none of that, none of that in the NBA. It's up to individual player discretion at all times to do whatever the hell you want to do. As long as you're on that team bus to shoot around the next morning and your heart's beating and your eyes are half open, you're good. Other than that, got no issues so go through all that it makes you realize that the road life can be really lonely if you don't like partying i mean i partied a fair i wouldn't say a fair bit i partied enough i mean um at all the road trips we went on the first couple of years maybe one out of five you go out and have some drinks and have you know have some fun times but i wasn't a guy that wanted to go out every night um i wasn't a guy that just stayed in my room so it's tough you know if you're not a party guy and out and about guy it can be pretty lonely so then guys get you know on video games we see a lot today a lot of, a lot of guys really love playing video games a lot of a lot of guys do different things there's a lot of podcasters now that are professional sports people so there's a whole lot of time you have and that's why we see players get in trouble to be honest with you you know we we, we get a we get a lot of players that just don't know what to do with their time and, and end up finding trouble, you know, and finding finding bad things to do and get caught up in all kinds of different things. So that's a story for another day. But yeah, my, my routine generally was just getting back to the room, you know, chilling out for a bit. If I'd go out, I'd go out. If I didn't, I'd stay, maybe watch a movie, order some room service. And I felt like I was living like a king, you know, be able to order room service to your room was just absolutely fantastic. So just one of those things that you've uh, you just got to navigate along the way. The other thing to remember was I wasn't of legal drinking age for pretty much the first half of my rookie year. So, wasn't really the top of my priority list to be going out. I'm not going to lie. I snuck into, didn't sneak into, but got into a few clubs with some teammates who had connections, all that fun stuff. But kind of stayed out of the way for the most part as far as um, clubbing and all that kind of stuff went. So, it just made for uh, for an interesting year with my own thoughts for the most part in my room. Let's loop back to basketball again. My rookie year was inconsistent. Um, I was up and down. I'd show a flash for a game or two and then have two horrendous games. And that was kind of the, you know, the formula for most of my rookie year, to be honest with you. I, I really started to play well towards the end of the season. Felt like starting to get a bit more consistent and felt a bit more comfortable, but still it wasn't a great year by any means. It wasn't a horrible year. I was top three in rookie of the year voting. I think I finished third, Chris Paul, Deron Williams. I was third, made the rookie sophomore game, which was in Houston, the all-star game. So my first taste of an all-star game, which is a whole another conversation of that is one weekend I did not enjoy. It was um, an honor to obviously go, but everything between that, the NBA has gone from 
pillar to post to appearance to promo to this to that to training session back to the game back to the hotel and it was it was just a lot on in a short amount of time and keep in mind that's that's my rookie year i would have much more or you know appreciated a rest to try and refresh my my battered body from that first season but um obviously a you know you you would not pass up an opportunity to play in the rookie sophomore game you you know basically picked in the top top 12 rookies in the league at the time which is a, a good thing but yeah it, it's a pretty full on kind of environment in those all-star games a lot going on and it's just um just a cluster fest you know it's just not something that I really enjoyed I had my agent come out I actually had my good friend Marco come out as well for that and um, hang out a little bit and he was enamored by everything that went on. So did that, finished the season, nine points a game, seven rebounds a night, starting at the four spot for the most part, which was the interesting thing. Jamal McGlure was the five, um, I was the four and yeah, it was a really big lineup. I wasn't obviously shooting threes at that point. I was probably shooting 18 footers more than I was threes and it worked for the most part. You know, we um, we actually made the playoffs which is a rarity for a, a team that just had the number one pick. So I think I was one of the few number one picks. I believe there's three other guys in the NBA, in NBA history really, that have made the um, the playoffs their rookie year as a number one pick. Tim Duncan, Chris Webber, and Magic Johnson. So not an elusive club as far as numbers, but those names are pretty impressive. So happy to be in some sort of record with those names. But um, obviously they are players that I um, never got to their kind of heights and they're obviously legends of the game especially Tim Duncan and Maddie Johnson Chris Webber who are legends of the game but to be in that esteemed company as far as number one picks making the playoffs let's not forget number one picks usually go to teams that are horrible the year before Milwaukee was bad but not that bad they got lucky with the number one pick I believe they they didn't um have the best odds they had you know, I think they were eighth or ninth chance to get it at everyone involved and it's arguable did that help or hinder me too going to a competitive team that's competing for a playoff spot as a number one pick can be good and bad because you don't probably get as much exposure to the ups and downs and, and unlimited minutes that a, a bad team that's already going to have a poor record is like play that guy 40 minutes let him play bad play good play okay he's got to figure it out so there's pros and cons to that argument but for the most part I think my rookie year as a number one pick was definitely not I didn't set the world on fire but I don't think I, I was a bust I I think I was in between those two and was consistent for, for the most part as far as numbers. Nine and seven is not horrible, but inconsistent with the way I felt I played confidence-wise and getting the feel for the game. And like I said, it just wasn't – I wasn't comfortable with my body being physically strong enough to compete on a nightly basis with the likes of those bigs. Even though I played the four spot, it was – um yeah, it was just tough wrestling against some of those behemoths they had in the NBA back in the in the early 2000s and late two, you know, mid 2000s. So yeah, we make the playoffs. We lose to Detroit in five games. That that was the towards the end of the run of that infamous tough, nitty gritty Detroit Pistons team. I don't think they won it that year, but they were close. But they won it the previous years before that, and they were they were a tough team and a tough team to contend to even after they were kind of dwindling from those championship hopes. So they were kind of a big rival of ours. Our flight away same conference same division played them four times a year but they they got us out of the playoffs pretty quickly but for the most part a pretty successful year considering you know it was a team that was in the lottery the year before and made the playoffs my first welcome to the nba as far as on-court stuff with teammates i remember this very vividly we played in portland and darius miles was kind of at that point towards the middle end of his career wasn't a superstar by any means struggled with his jump up played the four or five a little bit for for portland when they went small but mainly the four three at times but anyhow we um come out of a timeout during the timeout the coach terry stotts gives us the matchups and darius was a uh, a non-factor offensively at that point. So he was a, a fun guy to guard because you could just kind of relax and camp and, and not get a whole lot done defensively, not move around much. You dare him to shoot the jumper and just remember to box him out and that was your defensive possession. So we, we have our matchups. I get told, Bogut, you've got Darius, you guard him. We get out on the court and I walk to Darius and Michael Red also walks to Darius and then says, Rook, you got to take that guy actually. And I'm like, well, coach just told me to take him. And Michael Red was like, what'd you say, Rook? And, and we got into it. We got onto the floor and him and Mike had, had words. I was clearly animated. So was he. And <laughs> we get back to Milwaukee. I remember Larry Harris. Now he's a, he's a scout um, and the front office member of the Golden State Warriors. He was the GM at the time. Calls myself and Michael up. Michael Red to the office and sits, take a seat, guys. You know, doesn't say a word. Puts a VHS, yes, a VHS, that's how old I am. Puts a VHS cassette in the VCR on TV. That clip comes on of us two fighting on the court, like going at each other. And the commentators are like, look at these two guys. What is Bogut doing? He's a young guy. He needs to shut up, blah, blah, blah. But 
I believe I was in the right. That's what pissed me off because I was like, coach told me to take this guy. Why are you switching with me because you want the possessions off? Like, coach told me to take this guy. So, I felt like I was going to make a stand and Mike Red was the number one guy on our team, a fantastic scorer, an absolute bucket out there. But, you know, at times, we'll take the easy way out defensively. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And I took a stand and I guess you're going to side with the Max guy. Our GM essentially said, look, Bogues, you got to settle it down and Mike's right and he's the veteran. You got to listen to him. And that's where my frustration then grew a little bit with Terry Stotts. Now, keep in mind, I was I was coming from college, hard-nosed coaches, coming from Australia with the national team and, and kind of, you know, disciplined coaches to an extent. I, I wasn't a fan of the rah-rah motherfuck you coaches of just belittling you nonstop. But I was a fan of coaches that had their system and their line and you had to respect that. It didn't mean they'd cuss you out, but it meant, you know, you're not going to play for me if you do this or you're going to be told about it, right? Terry was, he's, he's a really laid back coach to an extent, doesn't get fired up very often. And, you know, he, the accountability for us for some effort things was not high at the time. And, and I think looking back, I was probably unfair on Terry Stott's in, in my thoughts, because because I came from that structured college and national team in Australia and that background of basketball, I didn't realize all the bullshit that goes on in the NBA. I didn't realize that, you know, a coach has to have the max guy in his camp, otherwise he's going to get fired. That's how it works. So, if a max guy is not happy with a coach, he goes to the GM and says, get this guy out of here or get me out of here. Now, it's easier to move a coach that's on three, four million than a max guy that's on 20 million, right? So, you don't want an unhappy star or max guy. And I kind of wasn't a fan of Terry because of that. I felt like he gave the high earners on our team a pass. Whereas later on in my career, I realized it was a, an adequate strategic move for, for you know a coach that only ever had one other head coaching job before that that wasn't successful. He's trying to remain in the league. Is You got to navigate those chess pieces to make sure you're liked by your two or three best players. And I, I didn't like that. I felt like I was from that school of like everyone's accountable the same way, whether it's one or 15. And I was probably the delusional one in my rookie year to even think that because I didn't realize the landscape. I was working in and how how different the NBA is compared to most leagues. It's, it's nothing like that. The coach is not going to cuss out the number one guy the same as the 15th guy and, and and vice versa, right? It's just not it's not what it is. And that's something that I had to kind of wrap my head around, which I never really got comfortable with. I feel like if you can go out your number one guy, you can then go out your, your 15th guy the same way. But if you are clearly strategically not trying to go after your, your best players because you're scared of their feelings, but then you want to go after your middle tier or your lower end guys, you lose a lot of accountability and respect. And that's that's how I feel, but that is 90 plus percent of NBA coaches. So that's where I'm saying I felt like I was unfair towards Terry with my assessment of him. And that's something I reflected upon you know, throughout my career. I, I think Terry was a very, very smart coach, especially on the offensive end. Look, defense wasn't a priority for him. I don't think it was just recently when he got fired um, in Portland. So defense was still an issue, but he, offensively, he's got some really good shit to him. And I think he's an invaluable head assistant. Um, I think he's a, he's a very good head coach as well, but just that defensive end probably needs some work for him to continue to be able to be a head coach in the NBA. That's just that's my opinion on it, and I hope to see him get another job somewhere. Another twist here, if you followed my journey, you've heard me talk about Steve, which is an alias for legal reasons. He was not really involved with me from, you know, during college and in those off seasons. I'd work with him a little bit, but during the college seasons, he wasn't involved. Didn't have enough money to fly out there. I had no money. Then I was in the Olympics for Athens, um, and then I was preparing for the draft. So I didn't do a lot of work with him over the last couple of years before my rookie year. And I'd realized most of the guys on our team, Jamal McGlure, for instance, had a personal trainer. He had a guy that would come to our facility. He'd stretch him before training. They'd do extra work outside of the club. He'd hang out with him off the court, make sure he was doing all the right things, trying to keep him in shape. And, and I think it was his friend as well, right? So it's a good relationship, but he paid a guy full time for that. So I was like, shit, I can afford to do that. And it'd be good to have someone in my camp that's fully supportive to me, but also can tell me you need to work on this or you're bullshitting here. Um, whereas I think assistant coaches at times have to kind of toe the line. They don't want to be too honest with you because they don't want to, you know, maybe hurt your feelings or they also, you know, have have instructions from the coach about not to do X, Y, Z. So, I thought, hmm, okay. So, we're in Portland, Monday, March the 20th in Portland. The only reason I knew the date is because I looked it up and we only had only ever have one game at Portland 
if you're in the East Coast. So look that date up. I remember I called him while I was just laying on the bed one night and was thinking about Jamal's guy and how a few guys have their own trainers and offered him kind of a, a role as, as my trainer, as my guy, right? And basically the, the role would eventuate into being a full-time workout guy in the off season. So maybe two to three months of full-time work. Then the other seven, eight, nine months would be flying into Milwaukee maybe twice a year for two weeks and that's it. And I'd give him a salary, which wasn't a silly high salary. It wasn't a low salary. But when you factored in that he was working essentially total of four months a year, it was a decent wicket. And say I had a slump, you know, my second year had a slump where I've had five bad games in a row. I would call Steve and be like, I need you on a plane here in the next couple of days. You need to get some extra work in. Or I just need, I need you to, you know, help me with this. Why is this happening? And he'd be on a plane, come for two weeks, and then he'd go back to Australia. That was a relationship in season. And then off season, it was all his training program. So he put together a training program, weights program, and we go to work, right? So that was that. And that's where Steve came back into my pretty much life. I can't even say basketball life because he's with me so much that it's back in my life, right? It's just one of those things that you realize looking back that, yeah, he was hired for basketball, but he had a he had a much bigger role for that. He was involved in my childhood, my kind of the late end of my upbringing, my adolescent years. So he was probably um, had a valuable shaping towards me as a person that he would have realized um, at the time. And I think most junior sports coaches in whatever sport it is, or even teachers at school, they, they shape who you are as a person to an extent, and they can be a fatherly or motherly figure. And Steve was one of those people. And like I said, now he's he's back in, you know, back in my life. So anyhow, that formal arrangement gets gets done. We sign, you know, we basically put together a little agreement, make it clear you're not full time. You're full time for three months a year, and then you just need two or three weeks, maybe twice from October up until May, where I might put you on a plane and back and forth. So he's he used to that um, opportunity to to still work out. He's he had a group of guys that he worked out that were in high school in, in, in Melbourne at the time, so he'd still do that, make some money there. So he was still doing okay. This is important for context for further my journeys. We'll get. To so why I'm discussing numbers to an extent and why I'm discussing the role that I'd kind of negotiated with him, but that becomes more important later on in this My Journey series if you continue to, I hope you will continue to follow. Let's just go through real quick the best memories for me of my rookie year. Now, there were a few, but the two that stand out most in-game were had a game-winning block against Dallas late November, right near my birthday. It was my Australian birthday, 28th in Australia, 29th in America. Actually, I got that backwards. It was 29th in America and 30th in Australia because uh, we're, we're actually a day ahead in Australia, silly old bogues. But anyhow, I still remember the play, tied ball game. We pick up full court, Dallas inbound the ball in Milwaukee. Jason Terry dribbles the length of the floor on the right-hand side and basically gets the just outside the block, tries to shoot like a floating jumper layup, and I block it out of bounds on the buzzer. Amazing feeling to have the game-winning play, have your paw print on, on something that affected the game so greatly at the end. And it was a walk-off block shot. Crowd was going nuts. Teammates got around me. Look, they knew I was struggling a little bit up and down, rookie year, inconsistent. And that was a big confidence push. The next one was surreal. The next one was against the then world champion Spurs, I believe. They won it the year before. I'm pretty sure they um, they beat the Cleveland Cavaliers, I believe, the year before. Could be wrong, but I'll have to check. But anyhow, late December, right before Christmas, 20th of the 12th, 2005, back and forth game against the Spurs. Comes down to a last possession for us. Um, I think it's either tie game or, or we are down one and we somehow end up getting the ball with 0.7 seconds left on the clock. So not a whole lot of time to, to get up a crisp jump shot. Call timeout. Like I said, Terry Stotts was very, very good at um, drawing up offensive sets off the fly. Just a great offensive coach, in my opinion. I think he's really, really good. He's got some good shit to him. He's got some good stuff in his back pocket when needed. Draws up a play. <laughs> Tony, you're subbing in. You're inbounding. One of the best passes of all time. Not just a big passer from the big spot, but one of the clear best passes of all time. He basically sets up a play where I start just under the hoop, kind of shading towards ball side block where Tony's taking the ball out of bounds on the sideline. We run a bunch of false action to have everyone but me run to the ball. So it leaves basically most guys, most of the help side is gone. I needed the guy guarding me, Rasha Nesterovic, to be in front of me to kind, kind of half deny me the ball. And he was, he bought that perfectly. He stood right in front of me. Basically, all I did was put a knee up his ass, um, push him as far 
or hold him off as far as I could to that outside block. Tony threw a lollipop pass over both of our heads. Right at the last second, I released off Rasha Nesterovic, caught the ball almost on the opposite block. So I was kind of half back backpedaling, caught it, put it up off the glass, nothing but net. Game winner, walk off on the buzzer. Amazing feeling. To have a game winner, there's a lot of NBA players, even superstars that have never hit a walk-off game winner before. There's a lot of people that have played numerous years that have never experienced that feeling. To experience one in my rookie year was something I'll never forget. I still remember that moment. The other thing is it was thrown from a guy that I idolized, a guy that when I was in the early 90s watching basketball and watching the Bulls run mid-90s, late 90s, Tony Kukoc was was a guy that I really looked up to, similar body, body, similar frame, lanky, gangly. And for him to throw that pass to me, you know, 10, 15 years later, it's just still surreal to me. So to have that opportunity where you can actually have your idol be involved in one of the best plays you've had of your career is surreal. So I really had had fun with that. So I'm pumped. You know, I think that that month or that week, you know, the vets were getting on me a little bit. There was probably some slippage on bringing donuts or something. Or I was being a bit of a smart ass as a young fella. And I remember, <laughs> I remember getting back to the locker room and I'm, you know, everyone's jumping up and down. And I'm like, yeah, fuck that rookie shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's a rookie now? Talking a little bit of shit, right? And I remember <laughs> Irvin Johnson and um, I'd have been Jamal McGlure actually, or, Mo, or maybe even Mo Williams just basically said, hey, young fella, you're still a rookie tomorrow. And yeah, the world came crashing down right after that for me. I, the realization that I just hit the best shot of my life, but I'm, I'm still I'm still going to the donut shop the next morning and get donuts for the fellas. So realization sunk in real quick. And that, that really showed me the highs and lows and the ups and downs of the NBA and the move on to the next thing. So you can have the worst game in the world. You can go 0 for 15, foul out, get a double technical, flip off the crowd, roll your ankle on the way out, and everyone's cussing you out. If you show up that next night and have a good game, no one remembers that that night, two nights ago. And vice versa, you can have 40, 40 points, hit a game winner, you're on top of the moon, and the next night you get dunked on and you're number one on Sports Center. It's a harsh reality, and that's that's why the NBA is such a beast. That's why 82 games is such a beast and just something that you have to remember that you can't get too high or too low. And I learned that very, very quickly. I was very high after that. And then 20 minutes after that shot in the locker room, you're like, you're still a rookie, calm down. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, back to business. So off the court, become a well-known figure handling this. We'll get deeper into this into further podcast, I assume. You know, it's it's tough. Everywhere you go, people know who you are. And, and look, even people that didn't know who I was, I was seven foot tall, and if you have two or three people out of the 10 that knew that were looking at you and asking for photos or whatever, the other seven just assumed you were somebody. So you have to be very careful where you went, what you did, who you hung out with, where you were going at certain times. I wasn't a guy that flaunted wealth ever rarely throughout my career. I'd have a nice watch every now and then, but I wasn't a guy that wanted to like, look at me, I've got money. I just kind of kept it pretty pretty um, average, low key if I could. That's, that's still me to this day. I, I think the more you get out and try to flaunt those things, I think trouble's going to find you more often than not and you're going to piss the wrong people off that you don't want to piss off. So I try to be humble with that and whether that's right or wrong. And I don't I don't have a problem with people that do that. If you want to flaunt your wealth and do all that, it's not me, but it's for you to do. It's your wealth, right? But I do, however, understand if there are, you know, issues down the line that you get in some trouble because of that. That, that, that can rear its ugly head. So I'm not too sympathetic for those people that go out trying to throw well from people's faces and then get caught up with the wrong crowds. It's just the reality of, of putting two and two together, in my opinion. So with that, doors start opening that I'd never even knew existed. I didn't even know there were doors there. You know, getting into clubs that were clubs within clubs, um, VIP sections, um, the best table at restaurants, you know, valets coming out. Let me take your car, sir. I'll leave it right up front. Just stuff that you'd never you know, experience in your life. And that was hard to get used to. It's something that you get in the midst of your career, you can take for granted because you're like, this is normal now. I still, you know, struggled with it at times, even, you know, mid to late career. So it's something I'm very thankful for, but at the same time, something I wasn't used to. The other side of things was dealing with women, females, and you become, I wouldn't say a target, but there's um, people that definitely, or women that um, definitely want to be seen, hang out with NBA players and being the VIP. And that was something that um, I had to get used to as well. You know, being that big, tall, lanky dude in high school where not a lot of female attention at times, you know, something you had to get used to for sure. And I, I, I can tell you, I got used to it. Yeah, I had some fun with it. But I was also very wary of not getting caught up in, in something I didn't want to get caught up in. And what I mean by that is, let's be blunt, you know, there's a lot of NBA athletes professional athletes, celebrities that have a bunch of different kids 
with different women and I always had that in the back of my mind. Like I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy that has a child in this state and a child in this country. And it just I knew I would eventually make my way back to Australia and live in Australia full time. And a concern I had was what if I meet, you know, someone here in America that you know, it's a bit of fun and it's not supposed to be anything serious and you end up having a child from it. I was real skeptical of that and scared of that and just not something that I wanted to do too much. Um, I had my fun. Like I said, I definitely um, had some, some some wild nights, some good nights and, and whatnot, how that all goes. But um, yeah, I, I wasn't I wasn't anywhere near what most people think um, when it comes to the NBA and, and all that kind of stuff, just because I was always so scared of that. I, I didn't want to do that. And I mean, each to their own. I'm not judging anyone that does. It's just the mentality that I had about, you know, not wanting to have an illegitimate child with somebody that I didn't value or like. I just thought that that would be the hardest thing to do in the world if you have a child with somebody that you don't really like. It's just going to cause you so much problems. And I've seen it with teammates of mine that are in that situation that have told me it's it's so it's very very hard. I'm trying to do the right thing with a kid, but the the mum makes things a little bit hard for me. And I know some teammates that are paying twenty, thirty, forty thousand US dollars for a child per month not year per month it's a lot of nappies but um that's that's the reality we're dealing with and why at times we can essentially be targeted by people you know so you just got to be very very careful but that's the off-court fun start to wrap up here like i said all in all not not the best year not the not the worst year for a number one pick i knew my body needed work as i stated earlier i was skinny 105 kilos 110 max 230 235 pounds Dwight Howard, Shaquille O'Neal, Ben Wallace, Yao Ming were moving me around like a chess piece. So I knew going into that off season, I need to put some weight on. I need to get in the weight room and I need to get stronger. And I, I knew that'd be hard to do because I had, I had the 2006 World Cup, World Championships were in Japan that year. So I wouldn't have a whole lot of time to get ready for the following season because I was getting ready for a World Cup, but I tried to, to get my lifts in when I could and, and ended up putting on a bit of weight, which we'll talk to talk about in detail in the next episode. But my first off-season as a pro was basically going straight to a World Cup or a World Championship playing for my national team. The final thing I'll finish with, I remember we finish game five. So we, we lose the first two games in Detroit of our first round playoff series. So it's 2-0. Come back to Milwaukee. We lose game three in a close one. I think it's 3-0. We then get them for game four, which is annoying for them because now they have to fly back to Detroit and play another game. And then they, they beat the shit out of us, I believe, in game five. We lose 4-1. We fly back that night. The reality of how fast guys are out of that city and on vacation or back to their home cities was mind-boggling to me. So here I am as a rookie. That night you fly back. We get back at one or two in the morning. You're already getting a text or an email or a, or a note from from the manager and the trainer saying this is your exit interview time. The next morning, this is your physical exit time. So the next morning, wake up, go to the facility. Generally, the vets will be first thing in the morning. This is the only time a vet would want to get up early. The vets would start at eight a.m. They have an exit interview with the GM, the coach. GM, the coach says whether they're coming back next year or not. Hey, great year. We appreciated this. If you're coming back next season, it'll be. We want you to work on X, Y, Z. We need you. We need you to do more of this, less of this. Um, we like this. We didn't like this. And then you go on to your exit physicals. You see the orthopedist and the trainer. They flag any injury you've had that past season. They go over it, make sure it's all right. If you have a current injury. They then document it, give you a rehab program, maybe put you in touch with people that can help you in your city, or at times they might want you to stay a couple of days um, extra just to, to finish something off before you can go, or they want you to fly back kind of after three or four weeks, come for two or three days so they can check on your knee or your back and then go back to your home, and then another two or three weeks later, you're flying for a couple of days. So every team does it differently, but that's what those days are for. They put formulate a plan, but literally we had guys, and every team has this, they were already already had their flights booked the moment we lost that game in Detroit. We're on the bus to go to the airport to fly back to Milwaukee. Guys already had their flights booked. And a lot of the vets would have 12, 1 o'clock flights. So exit interview, 8 o'clock, physical interview, 9. They're already on the way to the airport, out of there. And, and they're not back in Milwaukee till October 1 for the following preseason. So that's how crazy um, it is. Now, if you're in LA or New York, some of those bigger cities, I think guys are more comfortable hanging around there just because there's a lot more to do. But those smaller cities, your Indiana's, your Memphis, your New Orleans, your Cleveland, your Milwaukee, guys are getting out at all costs unless you're from there. So that really set home. So the next couple of days, I'm just hanging around like, what what do we do here? And that's the beauty of the NBA. The day your season ends, whether it be end of regular season, no playoffs, first round exit, second round exit, finals exit, the day it ends, you've got one more day to do some types and loose ends with your team, exit interview day, and then it's bang, 
you have nothing till October 1. And for someone, a person that's doing the same thing every day, regimented, 9 o'clock bus, 9.30 shoot around, 12 o'clock lunch, 3 o'clock bus, game at 5.30, straight to the airport, bus, home, sleep, practice, blah, 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 blah. So then someone's literally flicked a switch and said, you're done. See you later. See you in five months, four months, three months, whatever it is. It was um, mind-boggling. But um, that wraps up episode eight. Kind of a bit all over the place, and that was the point of it. There was a lot going on my rookie year, on and off the court, settling in, figuring out all you know life's challenges that we all have at some point. But all in all, a successful year. Learned a lot, both on and off the court. Got a taste of what the real NBA was like at times. Got a taste of everything I'd be coming to expect in the future. And that wraps up episode eight of the Rogue Bogues My Journey series. Once again, apologies for taking a little while to get this one out. I've been a little bit busy, a lot going on, a few exciting announcements in the coming weeks and months, both you know basketball-wise and business-wise. So looking forward to sharing those with you in the future. At Rogue Bogues, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, of course, LinkedIn, and all good podcast platforms should have our podcast at Rogue Bogues, pretty easy to find. Like, subscribe, share, and we'll get more of these out. I look forward to talking to you for episode nine. Thank you.